Please join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray. Amen. A New Testament reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elizabeth. This God is sadistic and evil. I was writing on my brand new electronic Smith Corona word processor with a brand new ribbon. And I wrote, I want nothing to do with a God who judges people. This God is sadistic and evil. I was in my 11th year of education of what would turn into 29 years total. I was in my suburban Washington, D.C. high school. It was 1997, and I had just explained in print to my advanced placement American literature teacher why Jonathan Edwards was obviously diagnosable on multiple fronts and why his God was sadistic and evil. Three years later, I was a Christian leading an investigative Bible study for non-Christians. Um, something changed. Something changed inside of me. It's not that I made a decision. Something happened. I was affected. It got inside of me. I was not a Christian. I found the God of Christianity ugly, even repulsive. And just a few late years later, I found that same God to be stunningly beautiful beautiful enough to sacrifice everything I am and have in order to know him and, and follow him and be in relationship with him. But whatever happened to me, it was invisible and it was not my doing. It was something that happened to me. What was it? What happened? It's something Jesus talks about in a conversation with a religious leader, a pastor named Nicodemus. Uh, the account is in the third chapter of the gospel according to John. I'm going to read the first 10 verses and then verses 14 to, to 18 as Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. 
In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Do you not understand these things? And then in verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What do we see here? First of all, we see three different pictures of exactly how bad things are in terms of humanity. First, we're not getting it. Look at Nicodemus. We're Nicodemus. Jesus says to him in verse 10, you're Israel's teacher? And you still don't understand these things? I mean, Nicodemus is a pastor. Jesus is talking with him about salvation. He's not getting it. We have a picture of what that probably looked like. Uh, you know, it's just this sort of, it's, the, the wheels are in there, but it's not happening. Thank you. Things are that bad. Jesus says they're going to get even worse. He says, he says, not only are we not getting it, we don't understand or even our need for salvation, let alone how it happens, but But Jesus goes on to say it's going to get worse because we start out in this life. He says, this is a hard one, folks. This this rubs against everything uh, Western culture would teach about human nature. But Jesus says we start out in this life already condemned. That's the language he uses. Verse 18, that last verse. Uh, Everybody's memorized John 3.16. Go two verses later and Jesus gives you the bad news. He says, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What what does it mean to be condemned? Jesus says that humanity is already condemned. What does that mean? It's, It's language from the courtroom. When a prisoner is condemned, it means that he's been found guilty and sentenced to judgment. To be condemned is to have no hope or a future. To be condemned means that the judgment has already been made. The judge has already ruled. The ruling cannot be uh, appealed to a higher authority. And the decision that has been made is not the decision to declare you innocent and let you go free. It's that other decision, the one you don't want to ever hear. Uh, How is this fair that we would start out condemned? Why would God make a world in which everybody starts out condemned? And the answer is that he did not create a world like that. He created a world in which humanity walked with God in the wilderness with no shame. We walked around, either the first humans in the biblical account walked around in a 
beautiful pleasure garden, completely naked, didn't know they were naked because there was nothing about them to be ashamed about. Like they're, they're, like all of us, we're naked. It's like, whoa, hold on, terrified, hide. I don't want you to see me because I'm defective and I know it instinctively. But we weren't defective in the beginning. We knew God and perfect knowledge, holiness, righteousness. And, and history is discontinuous because our first parents rebelled against God. They declared independence from God. And when they declared independence, they were expelled from that garden. They experienced death. They had been warned of the day of you eat of that tree, you will die. And yet God, even in his mercy, suspended the sentence so that we could be here. Because otherwise we would have immediately died and, and, say, and, and been sentenced to eternal judgment. And yet... Yet we were expelled, and we don't get to start out back in the garden. You know, the second generation didn't start out in the garden again because they were the, the children of, of our first parents. Uh, you say, how's that fair? I never declared my independence from God. Why would I start out already dead and condemned? That's not fair. Well, some of you are Americans. Um, raise your hand if you're an American citizen. I am so sorry. Um, so, and most of you didn't have a say. Jenny Whitman got a say. She chose this. Your decision. But everyone else here, all of, most of the rest of us uh, never chose to become U.S. citizens. So why are we not British subjects? Why am I not subject to the crown? Why do I not have a queen in, uh, in London? Well, the reason that I don't have a, a queen at Windsor is because my representatives in 1776, declared my independence for me. And I didn't get a say in that. When Thomas Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence, when all of those people put, put their signatures on it, they were representing me and declaring my independence. And so that when they then left God, well, left the UK, I left the UK too. Uh, so I am no longer a British subject. I never have been, but there is that memory of having once been. And that's something that we all carry spiritually uh, as sons and daughters of, of Adam. And we're all on borrowed time because the sentence was death. And it has been suspended very briefly so that we might live a few years or a few decades on this earth. But the judgment is still there. That's the bad news is we don't get it and we start out already condemned. And, uh, and Jesus says it's even worse because he describes our condition as being spiritually dead, not being spiritually alive. He says we have to be born Again, we need to be made alive. It's what Paul wrote in, in the second chapter of Ephesians, what, what, what was read earlier. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's talking to early Christians in Ephesus, in a Greek city-state, well, Greek city, uh, uh, in, in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, you early Christians, you were dead. And, 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 and all of us used to live among the dead at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath, like you were dead in your sins and transgressions. We start out already condemned, not getting it, and spiritually dead, and there's nothing that we could do about it. Jesus is driving that point home with Nicodemus, saying, Nicodemus, you should understand these things. You're, you're shepherding other people, but there is something that God can do about it. The Holy Spirit can take the spiritually dead and make us come alive. Jesus describes it as a, a new birth, being reborn or being born again. Jesus said in verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. 
what's it look like for something to be dead and then be made alive? I got a photo here. Let's get that next picture. Um, this is the uh, Los Plateau in central China. Um, it's also uh, known as the Yellow Earth Plateau. Uh, it is the most easily eroded soil on planet Earth, semi-arid conditions, and yet from decades of over-farming and unsustainable agricultural practices and uh, 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 heavy grazing, overgrazing, deforestation, um, what was left was basically dead. And uh, in 1994, uh, the Chinese government launched uh, the Los Plateau Watershed Rehabilitation Project to try to change this reality that was dead. They, they changed agricultural practices, reforested, uh, taught people more sustainable practices. And this is the same view. Next slide. Um, it, it was dead. What it needed was the ability to hold water so that when the monsoon comes, the soil could hold it so that things could grow. It's a picture of going from being dead to being made alive. It's an image of the new birth that God can take that which is dead, an atheist, and turn him into a lover and follower of Jesus. That's being born again. Jesus said in verse 5, or Nicodemus asked, how can, can a man be born when he's old? You know, we don't have an image of that bit of crawling back in his mother's womb. But Jesus is saying you're not getting it. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of both water and the spirit. Because flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to spirit. Water is not probably a reference to baptism. He's, he's making a parallel here between physical birth and spiritual birth. When, when the water breaks, the baby is born. When the Holy Spirit works, the spirit comes alive to God and is converted. Um, and every time you have a new birth, every time you have a birth, what do you get? You get a new something, a new life. We've got some pictures of what that looks like. Uh, every time in the animal world you have a birth, you get a new life, a new life beaming with life and energy, you know, uh, uh, beautiful little animals, all alive, new birth, <laughs> baby sloth. Uh, you know, we see newness. We see life come where before there was nothing, and it's, it's stunning, uh, it's like if you've ever seen a, uh, a caterpillar uh, weave a co cocoon around it, uh, you know, maybe a monarch caterpillar, it, it weaves the chrysalis, and then nothing seems to happen for the longest time. It's just this dead thing. And then uh, we've got a picture of that chrysalis. Um, and then what happens is bursting out of that comes this next picture. Uh, as this new thing comes out alive, it's a picture of new birth, and it's something that God does. Uh, Jesus says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again, in verse 7. Then he describes it by comparing it to the wind. You can't see the wind. You don't know, you can't identify, there's the wind, I see it, it's moving right over here. What you do is you see the effects of the wind. You see the leaves blowing around, you see the trees swaying, you see the weathermen, you know, braced for the hurricane as, you know, the, you know, hipsters walk slowly by behind him that you know you can't see the wind but you can see its impact and he says that's what new birth is like spiritually you can't see somebody come alive spiritually you can't see the holy spirit take somebody and impact their soul such that god becomes beautiful but what you can see are the impacts because suddenly they have a new interest god is interesting jesus is interesting i remember when it happened to me nobody knew what on earth was happening to me 
but I was sneaking around in my family's basement, slipping out the Bible so that I could look at it and slipping it back into the, 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 the bookshelf, trying not to disturb the dust because I was, I was ashamed of, of turning into a Christian. But, uh, but it became beautiful. And you couldn't see the Holy Spirit. You could see the impact in the change in my soul. Something internal shifts. Things that I used to devalue suddenly became very valuable to me. Um, Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, in, in uh, uh, centuries before Jesus, described it as a valley of dry bones. We've got a picture of that um, um, visualization, so to speak, of what it would look like. And, and God told him to go and, and saw this valley of bones of the dead, so dry, no moisture, no flesh, everything's gone, just dry bones, no life in them, no DNA left at all, just dead as it could be. And he said, preach to those bones. And Ezekiel said, okay. So he started preaching the word of God to those bones. And in his vision, those bones started to animate flesh and sinews and muscles, skin. And in no time, they stood up and they came alive as a great army. It's a picture of of God's church, uh, ancient Israel, coming alive as the word of God, as the gospel is proclaimed, a picture of new birth. Uh, And realize the Holy Spirit is the actor here. That's good. Thank you. The Holy Spirit is not something that we're doing. It's something that's done to us. The bones did not choose to come alive. When they came alive, they worshiped the Lord. But it was God's action. It's what theologians call a, a monergistic as opposed to a synergistic act. That, 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 that believing God is synergistic. The Holy Spirit's working on us and we are responding in faith. But, but, but that actually coming to life is all God's work, monergistic, mono, one actor. God takes that which is dead and makes it alive. God takes that which is hard and makes it soft. God takes a a heart of ice and makes it thaw and melts it and molds it into the shape of Jesus. It's God's work. Uh, As as for you in Ephesians 2, you were dead, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Uh, it's the work of God to take that which is dead and quicken us to new life. Uh, um, a bad sermon illustration that you may have heard, a um, uh, bad illustration of the new birth, uh, is, is the, this goes, if you can imagine, you are sick with a sickness unto death, and you are flat cold on your back in a hospital ER, and there is nothing you can do to save yourself. It's, it, it's terminal. But the doctor has one medicine that has to be administered orally, and he brings it up, and he tips it right up to your lips. But unless you open your lips and swallow, you will certainly die. And the problem with that illustration is the Bible doesn't say, but as for you, you were sick in your sins and transgressions, but God helped you. The Bible says you were dead, stone-cold dead corpse, and the picture of the new birth is of Jesus Christ slapping his lips upon you and breathing into you the breath of life, literally the, the ruach in Hebrew, the, the, the breath of God, the spirit of God, so that you who are dead then stand up and come alive, ready to worship and follow your Savior, Jesus, who made you alive even when you we're dead. That's the new birth, friends. Uh, that's the new birth. Say, okay, Greg, you've just told me that I can't make myself born again. Uh, you can't. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you maybe aren't there for some of you. I don't know. Uh, but what you can do is this. You can look at Jesus. Because as you look at Jesus, if God is going to convert your heart, he is going to do it when Jesus becomes beautiful to you. 
when Jesus becomes worthy, when Jesus stops being a historical figure or a guy in a book and becomes your savior, your best friend who died for you. Jesus says it right here in John 3. He says in verse 14, he talks about Moses and the bronze serpent, referencing Numbers 21, which, by the way, was the first passage I ever preached in this pulpit in the summer of 1995 as a seminary intern 24 years ago. still remember the three points that the the love of the three R's of the love of God, the reproving love of God, the reconciling love of God, and the uh, um, whatever that other one was, uh, restoring, restoring love of God. Um, thank the Lord for an end to alliteration. Um, but it's this passage in which the Hebrews are told that they've, they've cursed God and, and snakes have come upon them and they're all dying and they're sick. And, and, and God says, take a snake, put it up on a pole. A snake is a cursed animal. And lift up the one that is cursed in your place. And by looking to the one who is cursed, you will be healed. And Jesus says, I'm that serpent on a stick. I am that snake. I am the one who will be cursed in your place. Look to me just as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness. So the son of man must be raised up and all who look to him will have eternal life. Uh, Jesus came. Uh, to rescue us. He went to the cross on our behalf. He came to rescue the world. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. If you have Jesus, friends, you have eternal life. It is fixed. It is certain. It is outside of you. Uh, We talk of of three different bases for having an assurance of salvation. That's the, the confidence of knowing I really am a Christian. Jesus really is my Savior, I really will be with him forever. Uh, one of those is what we sometimes call the fruit inspection. Uh, you know, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit are present in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Uh, if those things are in your life, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is in there. Uh, we talk about the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit where Paul says that, that, that God's Spirit testifies to our spirits, that we are sons of God his own spiritual, supernatural reassurance uh, that, that, that maybe happens once in a blue moon and ever so momentarily, but it's like the light switch is on and you're like, oh, how could I ever doubt this? Uh, and then the light switch maybe goes back out, but your call is to remember in the light what you saw um, once you're in the darkness. And yet there is the primary basis for assurance of salvation, which is not your changed life, and it is not your internal feeling of reassurance from the Holy Spirit. Your primary assurance of eternal life, friends, is not something subjective or inside of you. It is the objective, external promise of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, God so loved the world that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are building your confidence on your changed life, friends, you're going to be disappointed because as you grow in Christ, you're going to see your own sin more and more and more, and it's going to pull the rug out from under you every time. The basis of your assurance that I belong, body and soul, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, is the fact that your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, Christ has promised you. His promise stands. His word stands. He said it. It is true. Jesus said, if you hear my word and believe him who sent me, you have crossed over from death to life and shall not be condemned. 
Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world but to condemn it, but to save it. The Bible says that to all who receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. Not the privilege, not the option, the right, the entitlement. It is the objective promise of Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You say, Greg, my faith isn't very strong. In fact, my faith wavers and it's weak. How do I know if I have enough faith to truly be right with God? And friends, it doesn't matter how much faith you've got. Jesus says if you have enough faith the size of a mustard seed, if you have the minuscule faith in me, you can do amazing things. It's not the strength of your faith that is key. It is the direction of your faith. It is not your power to believe. It is the one in whom you believe. It is not a question of your faithfulness, but of his faithfulness. It is external to you. There are two rock climbers. I've shared this story before. Two rock climbers climb up to the top of a mountain. It's pretty much a sheer cliff. It's bad. It's dangerous. There's only one way up. And they get to the top and they're resting, enjoying this beautiful view, this vista, mesa looking down across the cavern below. And then they see storm clouds in the distance and they realize, dude, we got to get down before that storm hits. And so they, they, they get ready, they get their gear together, and one of them starts going down this way and the other one starts down this way. And they're like, whoa, hold it. There's only one way up and down. We came up this way. The other guy's like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it was this one right here. No, it was this one. I am certain. I know it. I watched it. I've had my eyes open the entire time. I never moved my gear from the spot. I marked the spot. I am certain this is the way down. If you go down that way, you're going to die. This is the way to safety. And the guy's like, I, uh, you might be right, but I, I think it's this one. I, I, I'm more apt to believe it's this one than that one. Uh, and it's like, no, it's this one. I'm certain. It's like, I did, I didn't, I did, I'm probably wrong, but I think it's this way. And, and then it's like, fine, we'll just, we'll just do it. We'll see you at the bottom one way or the other. Uh, so this guy starts down his path, and this guy starts down this path, and the guy over here uh, stumbles and falls 4,000 feet to his death, and this guy gets down safely to recover his body. Now, the question you have before you today is which one had the stronger faith? This guy. His faith was absolute but it was in the wrong rock. This guy, his faith was weak. It was full of doubt. He was wavering. He was wishy-washy all over the place, and he was saved because his weak faith was in the right rock. The rock, friends, is Jesus, his objective promise. Believe in me. I will make you alive. Here's a story. We get that first slide. You all know the Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams Bianco. I'm going to read you a story. There once was a Velveteen Rabbit, and in the beginning he was really splendid. He was fat and bunchy as a rabbit should be. His coat was spotted brown and white. His ears were lined with pink sateen. He was naturally shy and being only made of Velveteen, some of the more expensive toys quite snubbed him. The only person who was kind to him at all was the skin horse. He was very wise, for he had seen many mechanical toys, and he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. What is real? asked the rabbit one day. Real 
isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time. By the time you are real, you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But once you are real, you can't be ugly except the people who don't understand. There was a person called Nana who went swooping about like a great wind, hustled the playthings away in cupboards. The tin ones hated it, but the rabbit didn't mind it so much for wherever he was thrown, he came down soft. Once, the rabbit was left outside after dusk, and Nana had to look for him with a candle because the boy couldn't go to sleep unless his bunny was there. Fancy all that fuss for a toy, she said. You mustn't say that, the boy said. He isn't a toy. He's real. When the little rabbit heard that he was happy, for he knew that what the skin horse had said was true at last, he had become real. The boy himself had said it. Near the house, there was a wood. And one evening, while the rabbit was lying there alone, he saw two strange beings approach. They were rabbits like himself, but quite furry and brand new and they stared at him and the little rabbit stared back and all the time their noses twitched he hasn't got any hind legs he doesn't smell right the wild rabbit exclaimed jumping backwards he isn't a rabbit at all he isn't real i am real said the little rabbit the boy said so come back and play with me i know i'm real but there was no answer weeks passed And the little rabbit grew very old and shabby, but the boy loved him just as much. He loved him so hard that the pink lining to his ears turned gray and his brown spots faded. And then one day the boy got sick. His little body was so hot that it burned the rabbit when he held him close. The velveteen rabbit lay there, hidden from sight under the bedclothes, and he never stirred, for he was afraid that if they found him, someone might take him away, and he knew that the boy needed him. Presently, the boy got better. The room was to be disinfected, and all the books and toys that the boy had played with in bed had to be burnt. Nana asked, how about his old bunny? That, said the doctor. Why, it's a mess of scarlet fever germs. Burn it at once. And so the little rabbit was put into a sack and carried out to the garden. And the little rabbit felt very lonely. And a tear, a real tear, trickled down his little shabby velvet nose and fell to the ground. Where the tear had fallen, a flower grew out of the ground. The blossom opened, and out of it stepped a fairy. She said, I am the nursery magic fairy. I take care of all the playthings that the children have loved. And when they are old and worn out, I turn them real. Wasn't I real before, asked the rabbit? You were real to the boy, the fairy said, because he loved you. Now you shall be real to everyone. And she flew with the little rabbit into the wood where the wild rabbits danced. I've brought you a new playfellow, said the fairy. You must be very kind to him and teach him all he needs to know in rabbit land. And she kissed the little rabbit again and put him down on the grass. But the little rabbit sat quite still for a moment. He didn't want them to see that he was made all in one piece. He didn't know that the fairy had changed him. And just then something tickled his nose. And before he thought what he was doing before he thought about what he was doing he lifted his hind toe and scratched it 
I actually have hind legs. Instead of a dingy velveteen, he had brown fur, soft and shiny. He had become a real rabbit at last. And the seasons passed. And the next spring, the boy went out to play in the wood and he saw two rabbits. One of them had strange markings under his fur. And the boy thought to himself, why, he looks just like my old bunny. But he never knew that it really was his own bunny come back to look at the child who had first helped him become real. Friends, you are that velveteen rabbit. That boy is Jesus, and he can love you to life. Look at Jesus. Look at him. Believe him. He has the power to love you awake, to love you alive, to love you, and to make you real. Oh, that you would look at Jesus and that he would make you real, alive to him, alive to God with the confidence that knows that you, friends, are loved because you are his little bunny. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for the objective promise of your word that whoever hears you and believes will have eternal life Whoever claims and names the Son of God will indeed be saved. Work by your Spirit, we pray. We consecrate to you the elements on this table that you might preach good news to your people in this city. Amen. Friends, you know, I